This podcast comes to you from the College of Law at Prince Sultan University in Riyadh. We seek to increase legal awareness and spread knowledge from every specialty. So today in our episode of Ikhtisas, we have a very special guest with us. Uh, we have Judge Tiffany Williams, who is a former administrative law judge and is currently a law professor at Pepperdine Curcio School of Law and the Associate Director of Advocacy. She mainly focuses on empowerment and faith, and she teaches legal ethics, law, and the Bible, mood court and advocacy, and legal writing. She also teaches legal writing at Princeton University, where she has also founded the Legal Advocacy Club. She is the secretary of the American Bar Association section of the litigation. Um, Honorable, is the the advocacy, um, she also founded the Legal Advocacy Club. This is not a Princeton University, correct? Yes, it actually is. It's a new new student uh, club that uh, some of my students at Prince Sultan wanted to put together and hopefully do an exchange of information with uh, students at Pepperdine, an American law school. Interesting, interesting. Did I pronounce it correctly or should I repronounce it again? Oh, no, it's fine. Pepperdine. All right. I'll do the introduction later at the end, maybe. All right. So mainly our topic today is going to be about the U.S. court systems. And Honorable, can you tell us what does the definition of federalism mean and how is it different than other court systems in a typical country? So first of all, thank you for having me here today. And I'm really excited to talk about the uh, American court system. And, and one unique aspect is this concept of federalism. Uh, and, you know, in the United States, we have both state courts and federal courts. Uh, we have uh, from our founding a tradition of states still being able to retain uh, their uniqueness, uh, their rights to govern the citizens of their state in the manner that uh, uh, upholds traditions and laws and public policies that they think are important. And so that also includes the right to organize a court system. Uh, and typically, states uh legislate for things that involve the health and welfare and safety of their residents. And those are the sort of topics that are heard in state court. And there are some areas that the federal government has said, we want to exclusively occupy regulation of these areas. Uh, And then there are areas where the federal government may have uh, some ability to regulate, but may defer to states um, or have the ability to preempt states. So we have these these layers. It's almost like layers of a cake. Uh, You have the federal system and the state system. And there are times when federalism uh, calls for the federal government to uh, occupy uh, the, the space. And then there are times when states actually retain their ability. And so both court systems uh, in uh, a particular state, uh, the federal court and the state court, they can look similar or they can look very, very, very different. Um, And I know we're going to talk a little bit about how courts are broken down, but just to give you an example, on the federal system, courts are organized basically on three levels. There are uh, trial courts, which are called federal district courts. 
They are geographically located within every state uh, in the U.S. and sometimes within a state, also within a region within the state. Now, they're supposed to be accessible to residents. So I live in California. There are tons of federal district courts because California is one of the largest states in the United States geographically. I used to live uh, up until last year in New Jersey, a smaller state. But even in New Jersey, there were three federal district courts. And then we have a second layer of federal appellate courts and our highest court, the United States Supreme Court. And I can get into more detail about how they're all organized uh, as we talk. Absolutely. So I like that you talked about what are the areas or the jurisdictions that each court looks at or has the authority to view. And um, let's talk about the Supreme Court, because a lot of our listeners are mainly interested in the Supreme Court. And how can a case be accepted to be viewed, if I may say, at the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court is the highest court uh, of the land in the United States, and the jurisdiction typically of the Supreme Court is to interpret the Constitution, to interpret federal law, which can include statutes, uh, regulations, even treaties. Um, And it is the highest appellate court, but it is not what we call um, a, a, a court of um, that you have a right to appeal to. So our intermediate levels of appellate courts, which are called our United States Courts of Appeals, and they are divided geographically and by circuits. The entire country is cut up into uh, different circuits. So those, you have a first right of appeal from a federal district court Whoever you are, no matter what the issue is, you can go ahead and appeal and get your case heard in a federal circuit court. However, the United States Supreme Court, Supreme Court of the United States, I should say, that is you have to have um, a reason that you are putting down in a petition called a petition for certiorari, and you're asking the court permission to actually hear your case. Now, As you know, there are nine justices of the United States Supreme Court versus uh, having 13 um, circuits of intermediate appellate courts that each have a whole team of judges spread throughout these circuits. So from a workload perspective, the United States Supreme Court with just nine justices is not able to handle all of the appeals that would come to it uh, from all over the country. So they're very choosy. And the sort of cases that they're looking for are cases of first impression, uh, cases that uh, would resolve some conflict, um, and something that uh, may just be an area of public policy that is very important uh, for us to, to resolve. So we should have confidence that the highest court in the land will step in and give us uh, some stability to an area of controversy that has a very large uh, public policy implications. Right. I, I also have one of the questions. Let's get back to the justices. Is that why is it a very odd number? Like, why are they only nine? 
Well, it hasn't always been nine. That The number has varied throughout the years, but typically uh, on a judicial panel uh, where you're, mm-hmm. it's not one judge uh, and there has to be a vote of a majority to know right. what decision is going to be made, just that math of having an odd number so that you will have an, an actual uh, majority is, is why there is an odd number. <laughs> I think that they're trying to avoid any ties and um, they're looking for the majority opinion just to, you know, solve the problem as soon as they can, which is, yeah, as you said. Um, The other thing, um, the intermediate courts of appeal, uh, those cases are typically in typical circumstances heard by a panel of three judges and three strategically, you know, so that you still have this majority. Yeah, I like to call them the odd numbers because, like, if you had like four judges, for example, then you would end up having a tie every now and then. Yeah, and how can you solve that? (laughs) Um, I wanted to mention one other thing about how cases get to the United States Supreme Court. So, states states also um, the highest uh, uh, court in a state also has the ability under some limited circumstances to be able to appeal directly to the United States Supreme Court as well. So there is a recent case that was decided by the Supreme Court recently um, involving a challenge to the election um, and and brought out of the state of Texas that was unsuccessful. That's an example of a state being able to appeal directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. Absolutely. And is there any specific criteria for choosing justices to the Supreme Court or being appointed as a justice on the Supreme Court? Absolutely. Um, and, and that's both in the federal system and the state system. When, when I was uh, the deputy chief counsel for a former governor uh, of a state in, in New Jersey, uh, one of my roles was to assist with the screening process for right. uh, both Supreme Court justices in the state, as well as Superior Court judges in the state. So the federal level works very similarly. And uh, I'm a part, uh, you mentioned I'm a secretary of the ABA section of litigation. Well, there is a uh, panel within the ABA that consists of lawyers throughout the country who are a part of a screening process as well. Now, the president is the one that nominates the justice, and it is the responsibility of uh, the White House to really screen the justices uh, and the candidates, I should say. As an intern in law school, I I was a part of that process under uh, the presidency of uh, William Jefferson Clinton. So I got to see uh, firsthand what that process is like. And there's a lot of screening of the decisions. Uh, If the judge was a judge in the past, which many of them are, um, you're pulling their decisions to to get a synopsis of their ideology. So ideology has become very important to selecting uh, a justice. Certainly, uh, one thing that the ABA screens as well is their professional reputation. Absolutely. Your reputation certainly matters. Uh, We want justices that are experts uh, in the law. We want justices that are highly intelligent and have a track record of using uh, rigor 
in their legal analysis and interpretation of law because they there is no one to check them essentially when they're interpreting the constitution that's it that's the last word that we have uh and certainly integrity so there have been um you know, justices that are on the court now and some that didn't make it where, you know, issues were brought up that their integrity was brought into question. And it became a big deal because we want justices that have integrity. So so those are some key aspects of what is looked for. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree more. Integrity is one of the most important um, criteria that is out there, because like, if you have the knowledge, if you have the expertise, but you don't have integrity, that's a problem. That's yes. a problem. That's my humble opinion, at least. Um, we also hear the word jurors. Like, um, uh, we notice in the U.S. court system is that some cases they might have a juror or uh, a bunch of people who are commoners. This is what mainly people know, that they are common people just like us. And um, they are sat in a panel. They listen to a case. But how how they're actually, how they're chosen and why are they chosen specifically? Is there a reason for that? Well, uh, first, let me say fundamentally that the American justice system is built on the right to trial by a jury of your peers. So, in fact, there are common everyday people (laughs) who typically live in the community that you live in geographically or or where the case is, is being brought geographically. Um, they are summonsed, a whole group of people, and usually a larger group than will be needed, uh, is yeah. summoned and they come to the courthouse and, and they're basically interviewed uh, all, all day long um, in groups. And they're interviewed by some combination of either the, the judge or each lawyer. Now, there are some courts where the judge is the only one that addresses the jury and asks some qualifying or disqualifying questions. In other court systems, the attorneys themselves are allowed to ask. But no matter what, the attorneys participate and it's a very strategic process. So there are some attorneys that hire jury consultants and and they pay them, experts, who can advise them on who would be a good juror. It is a critical part of your case strategy. And so questions are developed called a juror questionnaire. And so they're questions that are meant to elicit bias and um, any other fact that would uh, strategically just, just make an attorney feel that either a person just could not put something aside uh, and be fair and just hear the evidence. Um, and typically those things are, so, some typical things are, so if if I were, <laughs> it called for jury duty, I'm sure that there are some lawyers who would not want me to be on the jury because I've been a judge. And so one dynamic that they would be nervous about is, would I take control of the jur- jury deliberations and would the jurors all defer to me 
because I'm a judge. Sometimes lawyers get the same thing. I've also been a former federal prosecutor. So defense attorneys may think, oh, she may not be able to look at my client fairly because she's used to prosecuting defendants. So, you know, lawyers are strategically looking at those things. They ask questions even about what sort of books do jurors read because they're trying to get an idea of of the mindset. Yes, and their mindsets. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. What sort of bumper stickers are on your car, they may ask. They need to do their homework. (laughs) They do, they do. Your homework. Can can someone who has been called as a juror be excused for any reason? Yes, yes. Um, so some jurors may have some unique hardship as to why they can't serve, and that's for the judge to determine whether. Uh, and and it's a pretty high burden because this is your civic responsibility, and and typically it's inconvenient for everyone. So it can't just be an inconvenience, but. You can be excused from the judge that way. The other way you get excused is if you are dismissed from the jury, which means that either uh, attorney or both maybe agree that you are just not a good fit for the case. Um, There are what are called peremptory challenges. So each lawyer gets a set of, you know, uh, dismissals, so to speak. They can just for no reason as long as it's not an illegal reason. So you can have no reason why you want to get rid of me off the jury. But if it turns out that we find out that you wanted to get rid of me because I'm a woman. Yes. Then that's that's a problem. Right. Right. That's actually illegal and and grounds to kind of have a new trial. Absolutely. As a Saudi, for example, can I be chosen as a juror in the U.S.? No, not unless maybe you had dual citizenship. So typically yeah. you have to be a, a U.S. citizen. It, it is a, a privilege and responsibility <laughs> of a U.S. citizen. So yeah. it's only assigned to U.S. citizens. Um, if, there were, if there was a case that was tried in New York, can they have a jurors from, let's say, DC or they have to be assigned from the state of New York? Um, they, you're assigned typically from your state and not just from your state. So there, there are all kinds of court procedures and, and laws that are you know passed about kind of what those borders are. Uh, and typically every state will have some type of administrative office of the courts um, mm-hmm. as a branch of their government that makes those sort of of rules. But a jury of your peers is typically someone within your state, if it's state court, um, and and still within your state, even if it's federal court, but the geography boundaries may be different in federal court versus state court. Yes, I agree with you. Um, If I may ask you, Honorable, is that what is the one thing that you would want to change in the court systems in the U.S.? If, If any, if any. Yeah, I mean, I would want to change uh, the bias (laughs) that we know is in the court system. Um, Mm -hmm. 
There is gender bias in the court system. There's racial bias in the court system. Uh, There is bias sometimes against individuals that are disabled in the court system. There's sometimes bias against the indigent in the court system. Um, Where you have people uh, that have unconscious bias, you're you're going to have bias. Uh, And it can become systemic where you don't have leadership that is challenging and always trying to recognize the impact and overcome that bias. So fortunately in the U.S., I, I think we're really on the brink of more of a widespread acceptance of the what I call a biological fact that we our, our brain categorizes things and, and we have biases. I mean, all biases are not racism uh, and, and evil. It's just how our mind actually works. Um, but these biases can lead to racist and sexist uh, right. and classist behavior And it is our responsibility uh, as lawyers, as judges, as anyone interacting with the public uh, in the court system to be educated on identifying our own implicit biases and our own explicit biases and to overcome them. And I think as an institution, the courts should be mandating that individuals are doing this and providing them training as well. And, you know, Nora, everyone does not agree with me. I I have some colleagues, uh, I I know other scholars throughout the country who actually don't agree with implicit bias training and and really don't think that there is a need for it as, as well. And they don't think that the data supports it. But to me, when you have uh, so many, uh, people of of certain races and and particularly in the U.S., African-Americans disproportionately uh, coming in contact with the court system, uh, being in jail and incarcerated, being wrongfully convicted and on death row in disproportionate rates based on race. And that is both Black and Hispanic uh, men in particular. That means that there is a problem in our justice system. So that's what I would want to change. I can agree more. I can agree more. And and it's also seen in the media in itself that um, a lot of people are being dismissed after they found an evidence that they had no tie to the crime, for example. And it's like a few years that has passed from their lives. And you're asking, how how did it even possibly happen that you missed it? And that is a lot of questions. And I do agree with you is that it just shows like how our minds are, are like, it depends on your, your, the way that you have been brought up, but it also depends like if we focus on us being biased And if we were brought in a specific way, it will affect the way that we judge and it will affect the way that we come up with our decisions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that has been shown and documented both by the experiences that people have had in court, because experiences are data, as well as the data that we're able to collect as well. Exactly. I cannot agree more. And I do see that there are some changes that are happening. Um, a lot of people are becoming more aware 
of of how come we do not have this kind of unequal proportionate that um, the number of cases, depending on your race, depending on your color, depending on your ethnicities. And I see like a lot of people, as as I said, are becoming more aware of it, which is a very good thing. And maybe we will not see the whole biasness anymore. You don't know. Maybe we will not. (laughs) I I actually um, was just giving a a lecture uh, before I I came on here to meet with you about, um, you know, really nurturing this generation of law students to be uh, social change agents because that's in their heart. You know, there is a generation of future lawyers right now who they, they see these things and they're asking questions and, and they're not accepting the status quo. And it's know. not acceptable for them to see these disparities, you know, by race or by gender. So the, the world is changing and the legal profession will have to uh, to, to, to face <laughs> uh, change in the future, including the American justice system. And I, I'm very happy to be a part of that and to lead other law students and public policy students in the awareness of their uh, ability and responsibility in making that change. Right, right. Um, Honestly, we've talked about everything that we wanted to cover for today. Is there any last comment that you would like to share with our listener, Honorable? Well, first of all, I am honored to talk about the American uh, legal system and the court system. Uh, It's one in which I participated in, you know, as a judge. And uh, though we've talked about uh, just, you know, some areas of of reform, uh, it is a system that I'm astounded that uh, it remains so close to manifesting the ideals of its founding. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, I have to say, I think we got it right (laughs) in our country uh, with the type of system that we have, both the uh, federal and state system, Uh, the fact that we have, you know, a first right of appeal that people have, the fact that every case can't go to the United States Supreme Court, uh, every type of area of law does not go to a federal court. We do have some specialized courts. Um, So I I really like and believe in the system uh, that we have. And I just think it's important for us as a profession to be vigilant, to guard the system that we have so that it can uh, certainly personify uh, the, the words that are on the building of our Supreme Court, equal justice under the law. Equal justice. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your informative um, answering our questions, I guess. And um, it's a pleasure having you, to be honest. And thank you so much for giving us from your time to share with our listeners parts of pieces of the U.S. court system in general. Of course, answering all the questions that we had. And I do hope that they do enjoy listening to this episode and more to come. And um, I would wish you and our listeners a beautiful day ahead um, while listening to our episode. Thank you so much, Honorable, and see you in the next episode of our podcast of the sauce. My name is Nora Crimley. I'm a lecturer at the College of Law, and goodbye. 
We are proud that all the podcast episodes in terms of writing, preparation, and editing are done by our students, who we are proud to mention their names in the description.